I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. The deeply moving story of a daughter helping her father navigate the death with dignity legislation. The law allows terminally ill patients to control when, where, and how they pass away. This house was so important to him, and you know, it, it looks over, it looks out on the water, and you can dig clams right out the back steps. So it was his favorite place in the world, and uh, that's where he he wanted to die. So we were able to kind of give him that gift. Then, palliative care doctor B.J. Miller talks about the ethical considerations of this controversial law. Why would we jump to making it easier to die, to end your own life, rather than doing everything we can as a society to support someone finding meaning, finding peace, being loved in this life, so that you don't have to wish for death? A personal and professional view of death with dignity, all ahead on Life Examined. Before we jump in, I just want to let our listeners know that today's show takes up what is, for some, a deeply uncomfortable subject. Let's be honest, conversations about death and dying can be really hard as is. But today's topic goes a little further and explores something called medical aid in dying legislation, or death with dignity. Nine states, including California, have passed these laws. And essentially, they allow those who are terminally ill to end their lives peacefully by taking doctor-prescribed medication. Because rather than medically extending life, research shows that many Americans want the option of being able to retain autonomy in their final days if they're terminally ill and suffering. The process of qualifying for this legislation is rigorously managed. In fact, few people fit the criteria. And even then, even fewer ultimately decide to follow through. So why do endings matter, and not just for those who die? Bloomberg investigative journalist Esme Deprez had an intimate and front-row seat in observing how these laws work. Because it was her father, suffering from ALS, who decided to take matters of life and death into his own hands. And he needed her help. Well, Esme Thank you. I want to start where this article starts, and it has this really powerful opening, which is the moment that you realized or that your dad told you that he was ready, he was ready to exit this world. I, can you bring us into that moment, everything that was happening, uh, the complicating factors, and, and just what, what, what was going on for you when you heard that? He sent me a text message in March of 2020. I was actually in New York for work. I, I typically live in California. Um, he was in Maine, where both of us were born and raised, and he essentially said, you know, he needed my help um, so he could die. Um, it didn't come as a complete shock. He had had ALS for the past year, and so his body was really deteriorating. Um, of course, it, it was, did leave me a little shaken. It's not news that you ever expect necessarily to hear or want to hear. Um, but Maine had just passed, had become the ninth state in the U.S. to have, uh, to legalize essentially um, what's called medical aid in dying. So that allows uh, you to get a prescription from your physician for life-ending drugs if you meet certain conditions, um, which he, you know, ultimately, of course, did meet those conditions. So he needed me to help him qualify for that law. Um, And again, it didn't come as a total shock because he had just, ALS had really wrecked his body for the prior year. He he, you know, he was a super active guy and it just left him, you know, trapped in this brown leather recliner in his girlfriend's living room. And he just couldn't, you know, do any of the things that, that had given his life meaning. Um, so, uh, but it, it was, of course, a, a, shock, a shocking thing in some ways to be asked. But ultimately, of course, I, I helped him. And so the story really is about, about that journey of, you know, his life and then ultimately his death and, and my kind of role as a daughter in helping him qualify for this law and um, ultimately use it and and kind of the 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 beautiful ultimately the beautiful death that he could have as a result of that ability was there any part of you that that was hesitant that was scared that was second thinking uh, or, or second guessing what he might have wanted what 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 was that just like for you at the time yeah, I mean, this story kind of, I've always thought about it over, like, the overall theme, I feel like, of this story is control. Um, for the most part, we get to be in control of our lives. But what about our deaths? I mean, that's not always the case, much less often the case. Um, control over our deaths often gets ceded to doctors. 
you know, who work within this medical system that has all of these tools to prolong our lives instead of let them end. Um, often, you know, we have family members that don't want to see us go. So, you know, may keep us on life support or, or pushing for aggressive interventions. But in the case of my dad, I mean, he was such a foundational teacher for me throughout my whole life. So I guess it's, you know, not a surprise that he was teaching me until the end. But, um, you know, I couldn't change his decision about when and, and how to die. Of course, I didn't want him to die ever. I mean, uh, but, you know, ultimately he was in control. And so when, you know, when he when he got diagnosed with ALS and it really started just ravaging his body, you know, he lost his freedom, he lost his independence, but he could still be in control over his death. Um, so I really had to learn that, like, you know, the only way I could honor his right to be into control, to, sorry, to be in control was to surrender my own. And I wasn't in control, you know, nor should I have been. Right. Um, it was right. his life. It was his death. And ultimately, I feel like that was the, the final gift that I could give him. So, of course, you know, this is all hindsight I have now. But in the moment, you know, I really just wanted to help put him at ease. And can you paint a little bit of a picture of, of who your father was? What was he like? Um, you do a great job describing him in, in, in the article, but but what were some of the things that, that you would want us to know about him? Yeah, my dad was just in a word awesome. Um, he was a, he had an incredible mind. He was a Harvard trained epidemiologist who was passionate about public health. He could recite William Wordsworth from memory. Um, and he was also an extremely physical, very active guy. He was a really disciplined athlete who you know, took care of his body and never stopped pushing it as far as he, as it could go. Um, he was an 18 time marathon runner. He biked and swam and did yoga and went skiing and rock climbing with us into his seventies. Um, he was also just a really a blunt and confrontational and, and confident guy and, and so much fun to be around. And he just had this kind of indefatigable work ethic and this fierce independence and, and also frugal cheapness of a true Mainer. Um, when I was writing his obituary, one of his best friends told me that he saw my dad as a model of how to live life to the fullest, which was a, a wonderful thing. And, and he also talked about how, you know, my dad had this wonderful ability to laugh at himself for his own quirks, of which there were many, of course. So you would, you would eventually take up this call of his and, and fly to Maine and begin, um, what was also just the kind of uh, going through the, the logistical mechanisms of putting your father to rest. And, and it wasn't necessarily an easy one. I mean, th these laws have a lot of backstops to make sure there's no foul play involved. What was, it, what was it then like for you? What were some of the steps you had to go through to kind of uh, eventually take your father where he wanted to go? My dad made, um, so the law requires, you know, an, a two oral requests and one written request. So he could do that on his own. Um, one thing that emerged kind of as the biggest hurdle, and it really made him pessimistic about his chances, like he got into this very dark place where he didn't think that this was going to be an option for him, uh, in part was, was a result of his denial that he had ALS. So one thing about the disease, which I've since learned, which is, is really interesting, is it's called, doctors conclude someone has it based on what's called a diagnosis of exclusion. So they systematically rule other things out. Um, so it's not like there's one test that you can take that says, yes, you have ALS. Uh, and my dad was really uninterested. I mean, he, he was this, heart, again, he was a Harvard-trained epidemiologist. But in this crazy twist of fate, he, he didn't follow up with neurologists when they first identified ALS as the potential cause of his body's decline. Um, he just wasn't interested in confirming it, essentially. Uh, so one thing that we, that we came across um, kind of as the biggest hurdle was just this, this idea that he didn't have an official diagnosis because he hadn't wanted to follow through uh, with all the tests and the confirmations that he, that he actually had ALS. In the end, of course, we, we were able to get that, and it was very clear you know, from the disease's progression that this is what he had um, and that's what his doctor needed to go forward. But that kind of just felt like a particularly ironic um, <laughs> hurdle to face. Uh, right. But otherwise, you know, yes, the, the law has built-in delays and, and a lot of requirements. And of course, this is not, you know, a, a small thing to undertake and, and nor should it be. So um, it was a, a bit of a complicated situation with my dad, but 
ultimately, um, you know, he did, he did of course qualify and, and then use it. The the law in Maine is based off of a law in Oregon, as as I as I believe most are at this point. What what is? Can you tell us a little bit about that legislation? I mean, and and what it's intended to prevent, as well as what it's intended to help. Yeah. So nine states plus Washington D.C. now have a version of this law, and Oregon became the first in the 1990s. Um, I should note also that I mean, every year advocates are trying to, you know pass this law in a number of more states. So you, we might actually see action on this in New York and New Mexico and Arizona and Maryland and other places this year. But essentially, yes, they're all modeled after Oregon's. Um, it, they allow you to, to, if you have a terminal illness and a prognosis of six months or less to live, you can obtain life-ending drugs via prescription. Um, some other countries have more liberal parameters, but this is the framework that we have in the U.S., and that advocates have found tend to be what gets passed by lawmakers. Um, this is not euthanasia, uh, and that's a different thing. Um, and this is not uh, something that people with diseases like Alzheimer's or dementia can qualify for um, because of the law, the ways that law, laws are written. So they're, you know, in some ways they are quite narrow. Um, diseases like Alzheimer's and dementia, you know, those diseases progress slowly. And they kind of lead to these complicated ethics of consent later on when people are closer to dying but you know have likely lost the mental competence to decide so you know the laws that we have in the u.s are quite narrow compared to some other countries that have them and there's about 10 countries in total that where either the whole country has has it's legal in the the entire country or just or parts of it to keep on this story here, um, what happened after your father got permission? What what was the next step? I took his his black truck to the pharmacy um, and picked up the drugs. There's only one pharmacy in in the whole state of Maine uh, that uh, that mixes these drugs. It's a you they, they you need a compound pharmacy to make them. Were there any moments, say? picking up the drugs from the pharmacy, driving over there, where you just had these moments of, wow, what, what am I doing right now? What, how, how, can I, how can I just emotionally understand what is going on? I mean, was there any of that surrealness that entered your, your mind at all? <laughs> yes, totally. I mean, it was insanely surreal. Um, it was absurd in some ways. Uh, so yes, it was, it was completely surreal to, to pick up the drugs, um, I remember very vividly, you know, the day that he died, my brother and I standing at the, at the kitchen sink mixing the drugs for my dad in a rocks glass. Uh, that felt just it, it totally surreal. Uh, I, think, I remember we, you know, we looked at each other and we were just like, what, what are we doing? But, you know, again, it was, it was what our dad wanted. Um, so, you know, we, we kind of did it as an act of love. Um, another thing that was super surreal was in this moment. So before my dad got qualified for the law, he, like I said, he was, he was quite pessimistic about his chances. I mean, it was really just the, the law was very new. It was hard to navigate. Um, and so he just, you know, he was kind of pessimistic about a lot of things at that point, but he, he really was, was worried that he wouldn't qualify. And so in, in that space, there were a couple days where, I was sitting there kind of brainstorming other ways to off him, essentially, um, which was also totally surreal and absurd. Yeah. I mean, you write in your article. I mean, it's this moment where I know you're, you're thinking, oh, my God, if I don't get permission from the medical system and my father still wants to die, am I going to help him go through with this? Am I going to come up with an alternative means of, you know, of, of, of a gun or a this or a that or another concoction? I mean, it, it was getting... It was getting intense from what I could read or I mean, and I can imagine quite confusing for you in this process. I mean, these were like obviously horrific things to think about, but it was all, you know, and I, I don't want to sound like a monster in like in thinking about those things, but it was all, you know, an attempt to kind of assuage my dad's fear that, you know, he could die on his own terms. I wasn't going to let him waste away and you know, have an awful prolonged death that ALS, you know, 
uh, you know, all, I guess always uh, portends. And so, you know, we thought about all these uh, these terrible options. I mean, there's um, there's a, a clinic and or there's an organization in Switzerland where you can go where assisted death, um, where non-residents can obtain an assisted death. So Switzerland is essentially the only place where a non-resident can do that. So um, there are people that, you know, travel to Switzerland to, to do this. And, you know, we were obviously so lucky that we didn't have to do that. Obviously, that would have been a pain in, in more ways than one. And also, it would have meant that my dad couldn't have this, you know, this really peaceful death at home, which is ultimately, you know, really where he wanted to die. He was not, he was always so adamant, you know, I don't want to be hooked up to tubes. I don't want to be on a feeding tube. I don't want to be on a ventilator. I don't want to be in a hospital. You know, I want to die at home in a peaceful manner if I can. And that's, you know, what we were able to give him, what this law was able to give him. Can you talk about the place that he wanted to die and the circumstances under which he wanted to die? Because it was a special place. It was a beautiful place. And I know it meant a lot, a, a lot to you and, and your father. Tell us a little bit about that. My dad bought a house in Deer Isle, um, which is about, uh, it's, it's, if anybody knows Acadia National Park, it's very close to Acadia National Park. So it's about halfway up the coast of Maine. Um, it's not where he or I grew up. We grew up further south. Um, but it's this wonderful bridged island. There's just a few thousand people that live on it. It's a art. It's a. It's primarily um, a fishing, a fishing community. Um, people really just live their lives on the ocean, um, lobstering and getting all sorts of other um, animals from the sea. Um, and a lot of artists and just this kind of eclectic community. And so my dad had actually discovered this area uh, back in the 1990s when he was working on a, a rural health project nearby. Um, and he loved it. And so he bought a house in 2010 and it was really just a shell back then. Um, but he spent, you know, the better part of a decade building it into a home. And that was one of his great passions too. Again, this this idea, he was so active, like he could do everything. He could, he wired, you know, the electricity in the house. He could lay the tile floor. He could, um, you know, just do do every I mean seemingly do everything so he really this community and this this house um was so important to him and and you know it, it looks over it looks out on the water and you can dig clams right uh, you know out the back steps and um so it was his favorite place in the world and it's become my favorite place in the world too um and uh that's where he he wanted to die so we were able to kind of give him that gift of of being able to, to die there. So in his final days, um, again, he was living a little farther south with his girlfriend for the past year as he had declined, but we were able to, to take him up to Deer Isle um, so he could die essentially where he wanted. You write about just the last the last day. You mentioned it a little a, little, a moment or two ago about how you had to kind of mix mix this cocktail of drugs. Um, I, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what those last... 12 to 24 hours were like and uh, the gravity and the levity and, and everything that can go into that into that moment. So my dad wa- had wanted to die originally on a Monday. Um, we got to Deer Isle on a Sunday and originally he had said Monday would be the day. Um, my brother had just flown in from California the night before and so I talk about in the story kind of how Monday wears on. I mean we started the day thinking that this would be the day and, you know, we all gathered around him and we brought up these Rubbermaid bins from the basement full of photos and we're going through the photos and just kind of reminiscing and, um, and the hours just wore on. And one of the requirements of the, of the drugs is that you, you should take them on an empty stomach. Um, but he kept wanting to eat. And so it was, you know, it was a, it was a bit maddening in a way because we were like, Dad, you know, obviously we wanted him around as long as we could have him, but we just didn't really know where his head was at, but he kept wanting to eat. So I kept getting him food. Um, and eventually kind of the day, you know, went on and, uh, and, and it turned into night and it was clear that, that we, you know, we could have this day with our dad. And, and I think this speaks to really the peace that, that he could find knowing that he could die on his own terms. I mean, one of the gifts that this law gave him was to be in control of when and how he died. But another gift that it gave him was 
was peace in his final days. I mean, he could make the most of the time he had left because this cloud of uncertainty about how it would otherwise end and this fear of how awful it would be for everyone for him to have a prolonged death, that was gone. Um, that Again, that was the, the gift, really, that this law gave to him and to us. Um, as, I was re- as I was reporting this story and writing it, I read uh, Atul Gawande's amazing book, Being Mortal, which I, I really recommend. Um, but at one point he says, and I wrote down this quote, quote, endings matter not just for the person, but perhaps even more for the ones left behind. And so that was really the gift that my dad, in choosing this path, gave to us. Um, as awful and as traumatic and profoundly sad as the idea of him dying was, my dad had arguably, you know, what was perhaps one of the best possible deaths that you could have. And did he, did he ultimately pass inside? Were, were you all together? What, what was that like? Yeah, so he started the process on, um, it would have been Tuesday. So he started the process on Tuesday at about 4 p.m. And you, you begin it with an anti-nausea drug. And so we did that. So, you know, essentially at one point he just declared, okay, this is happening. And so uh, we gave him the anti-nausea drug and we wheeled him out onto the front porch um, so we could look over, uh, look out at the Atlantic Ocean. And um, it was still really cold outside. Uh, you know, Maine had not had its, it was April 21st, but, but Maine still hadn't had its last snowfall. Uh, but all around us, as I talk about in the story, you know, there were signs of spring. So it was this really, you know, interesting and beautiful dichotomy of, of my dad dying and essentially like, you know, rebirth all around us um, mm-hmm. out in the woods behind the behind the house. You know, the fiddleheads were just popping out and the, the spruce tips were emerging from the branches of the trees. Um, and here my dad was, you know, dying. Um, so essentially we, it started to rain and we wheeled him back inside. At this point, of course, he was in a wheelchair. Um, and we wheeled him back inside and put him in his favorite chair. And then my brother and I went to the sink and had that surreal experience of mixing the drugs for him. And my dad was so brave, and he just, you know, he looked at the the he looked at the cocktail of drugs, and you know, for a few moments, and then he just gulped them down. And in hindsight, it was just like, God, Dad, like that's <laughs> so brave. Um, he just faced it. I mean, he, again, he was such a confrontational guy and and he confronted death with this with this bravery that is just so um just admirable in my mind it takes uh essentially you take that first drug and then about a half an hour later you take the sedatives um and the sedatives put you to sleep like you know within minutes if not seconds um so during that time you know we we read some poetry to him we played some of his favorite songs um, you know, he, he, he kind of said some final words, you know, he said something to the effect of, you know, I'll be, I'll be all around you. Just look for me. Um, he also had this, there was this really incredible moment where my husband and my brother had kind of walked away for a minute and he turned to me and he just said, S, you know, he, it was such kind of an apology. He said, you know, if, if I felt like I had any other choice, I wouldn't be doing this. And it felt like an apology, and I just I told him I understood. And then uh, and then he took the, the the last batch of drugs, and he closed his eyes, and um, for a while he looked like he was napping, <laughs> which he would often do in that chair. Um, and it took about three hours for his heart to to finally give out, um, and then it did. The. The descriptions of, of, of the spring, of the ocean, of the time, of the words, I mean, I, I just can't help but be moved at what a, what a powerful experience that must have been for you and your family. Yeah, it really was. I mean, especially this all taking place during the pandemic um, was kind of a crazy scenario. I mean, the, the pandemic, as I, I say in the story, you know, the pandemic has really forced people to confront and consider death on a daily basis. I mean, this is not something that most of us are used to. And, I, you know, I talk about how kind of on a macro level, that's that's actually quite good, I mean, in a way, because, you know, conversations about dying and disease and end-of-life care can be really uncomfortable 
Um, but research shows that they make it more likely that we'll die in ways that honor our wishes um, and are kind of easier for, for, for the people that are left behind. Um, I read about how, you know, historically it's been at times like this when, you know, when, when we're really confronting death as a, as a society, when people's attention increasingly turns to things like advanced care planning and, you know, thinking about how we want to die. And so that is kind of the silver lining. Um, and kind of on a micro level, you know, the pandemic for me has just underscored how lucky my dad and our family were for the death that he could have. I mean, so many people are dying these tragic, lonely deaths in chaotic hospitals. Um, and, you know, my dad could have this peaceful, graceful exit at home. This story is so, so deeply personal. And, and, and then I, I wondered for you why, why it was so important to write this, to share this, to, to look into this further. Yeah, there's so many reasons. Um, you know, obviously I went through this experience as a daughter and so writing about, having the opportunity to write about my dad and share his story with the world was, you know, an incredible way to honor him and how much of a pioneer he was in death uh, just as he had been in life. But also, and more importantly for my editors, frankly, you know, I've been a journalist again for more than a decade I write mostly long-form narrative for our magazine, um, so that requires, you know, proactively identifying good story threads that require a lot of time, a lot of immersive reporting, and I kind of immediately saw the, the news value in my dad's death. I mean, here he was, one of the first people in Maine to take advantage of this new, unknown law, and I had a front-row seat, and not just a front-row seat, I had played an active role in it all. So. I could share that with the world and perhaps demystify it for people. Um, you know, the majority of Americans say they would, they would, if faced with a terminal illness, want to forego aggressive care and they would want to die at home. And my dad shows, you know, one way to do that. Of course, it's definitely an extreme option. You know, not many people choose this path, nor will they do so in the future. But one of my editors described this story as kind of a field guide. Um, you know, there are so many of us whose parents are baby boomers and they're getting close to old age and facing illness and, you know, ultimately contemplating death. And, you know, the question becomes, how can we help ensure that they can retrain, retain control and autonomy in their final days? And I feel like my dad's story kind of uh, opened a window on, on one possible path toward doing that. Yeah, it, it certainly did. And, and it reminds me of, of something you said, which is that Americans say they want to die at home. They want to have control over that. But it's something that rarely happens. I think anybody listening could talk about these the fact that so many of our loved ones die in hospitals, not in the place they wish to be. And, and I will just say this, too, because you touch on it in your article. These prolonged deaths can drive families into crippling bankruptcy as well which I know is something that came up a bit as well, and I think it's worth mentioning here. Yeah, so again, um, Atul Gawande in his book particularly talks about, yeah, how many people, you know, go, literally have to declare bankruptcy and go on welfare to, uh, to pay for long-term care. And of course, this is, you know, a bigger societal problem as more people age and enter Medicare. You know, there's a bigger population of, of older Americans, you know, needing and seeking care. And it's really, you know, a problem on the macro level as well. Um, in the case of my dad, I mean, yeah, the, one of the things, I mean, he was not, this was not, he didn't have a financial incentive to do this, but he wanted to leave a legacy to his kids and his grandkids. He didn't want to, you know, spend all his hard-earned money. I mean, my dad grew up really poor and he had made, you know, made a m nice middle-class life for himself. And he was proud of that, as he should have been, and he didn't want to kind of spend, you know, his life savings taking, you know, paying people to take care of him when he wouldn't have wanted it anyway. I mean, it would have been one thing, you know, if that could have brought him a satisfying life. But of course, in this case, you know, with ALS and what it did to his body, you know, he would have, he would have been miserable anyway. So, um, but that was definitely, um, a, I think, a thing that gave him comfort that this was a way to, to, you know, end life prior to the point of needing just all of this crazy expensive care that would have really drained, you know, all he had worked for for his whole life. Right. Another important 
part of this article is I think is I think getting into some of the terminology of how we talk about this stuff, um, euthanasia, uh, physician-assisted suicide, or right to die. I mean, there's all these kind of different terms we're using um, when when we talk about this subject. I, I wonder if you could get into that a little bit more and explain that for some of our listeners. I think I think there's some important distinctions to be made here. Yeah, tr- language is definitely always a tricky but really important thing. So. What I learned in the course of my reporting was, I mean, the dated term for how my dad died is physician-assisted suicide. That is a term that's now primarily used by only opponents. Um, What advocates call it is death with dignity, which is also a euphemism, um, you know, that has political purposes. Um, So the, the, the most neutral term is medical aid in dying. That's, again, that's what my dad did. And that is different than euthanasia. So euthanasia is when a doctor physically administers the drugs, usually by injection. Uh, The laws here in the U.S. all forbid euthanasia, and they instead require patients to ingest life-ending drugs on their own. So the doctor, of course, writes the prescription, but doesn't, you know, assist in the physical administration of the drugs. Um, And this is important for people... Because it, you know, it just, it, again, it puts con- the ultimate control in the hands of the person that is deciding to choose this path. Um, the catch-all term for all of the above that we just talked about is assisted death. Um, so going back to this word suicide, which I think is, is pretty important. I mean, critics would call my dad's death a suicide. In my mind, you know, and in his, I mean, he wanted to live, uh, but he was going to die from his illness regardless of whether... He used these drugs to hasten it, so the word suicide just never felt like it fit. Well, finally, for, for those that are listening, that, that are thinking about this, that are, that are wondering if this is something that they would ever incorporate into their life or with their loved ones, I wonder if there were ever moments that, that you second-guessed yourself or if you thought that this was, this was the right thing, no matter what. So, what any final perspectives on that to share? I have never, yeah, luckily, I have never felt like regret or remorse or, I mean, just regret, I guess, that, that this is the path that I chose to to help my dad with. I mean, I feel so grateful that I could help him in this way, and this was kind of one final gift that that I could give him. And so, you know, I feel really lucky that... Um, that I think I did the right thing and I think he did the right thing. I mean, he was, he was a real my way or the highway type. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was, he was a confident guy. He did things that, that he thought was right for him, you know, sometimes for better or for worse. Um, but he really believed that this was the right path for him. And, and at one point, you know, he, he, one of the last nights I, I slept beside him the past, the last two nights of his life so I could help him, um, kind of ground and you know get up to go pee and and things like that and I I I felt like I was the one that should be thanking him because he had chosen me to be with you know to be beside and to and he had asked me to be the one to help him and that like like such a wonderful gift that that I could give him in a way to to honor how much he had done for me over my life you know I could kind of pay it back a little bit so um yeah, luckily I, I have felt really grateful for for the opportunity to help him in this way. And again, for, for him to be able to have this really peaceful exit um, amid all the chaos of the last year, I just feel so grateful that that he could have that and he could give that to us. Well, Esme Deprez is an investigative reporter with Bloomberg. Um, thank you for, for sharing the story with us on KCRW. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Once again, that was Esme Deprez. She's an investigative reporter with Bloomberg Businessweek. Most recently, she wrote about Maine's medical aid and dying legislation in her article called How I Helped My Dad Die. Still to come, legalizing death? Our next guest says we shouldn't make it too easy to give up on life. Join us after this short break. This is Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled 
This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard the poignant story of investigative reporter Esme Depress, who helped her father die using Maine's medical aid and dying legislation. California enacted something very similar in 2016. The decision to end one's life while suffering a debilitating illness is intensely personal. Religion says death is not for humans to decide, and doctors swear an oath to forestall death at any cost. So could death with dignity legislation open up a slippery slope? Is there more to be done to give life meaning, even in the face of suffering? Dr. B.J. Miller is a palliative care doctor who teaches at the University of California, San Francisco. He co-authored the book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, and is the founder of Metal Health, which helps people navigate the healthcare system when dealing with life-threatening illnesses. Dr. B.J. Miller, welcome back to Life Examined. Thanks, Jonathan. Good to be with you. We're talking about a subject here that I know is very uncomfortable for folks, the idea of uh, physician-assisted death, the right to die. There's a lot of different terms we can use here. Yeah, but we just heard this really moving story of Esme helping her father pass away here. And you're a medical professional. Uh, I know this is something you've been thinking about. And when you look at this massive subject, how does this make you feel as a professional? Where does this, where does this take your mind? Well, in short, many places. You know, there's, there's me as a human being, as an individual who wrestles with his own mortality. There's me as a physician, which is a slightly different angle on this stuff. So um, there are a couple different... So it's complicated. I think, in general, one of the ways in the West, the way we've generally handled death is to consider it something of an enemy presume that no one would ever want it, um, and that there's something wrong with you if you somehow welcome death into your life. Um, so we keep it at arm's length. It's this thing that we avoid for as long as we can, and then grudgingly we'll, we'll deal with it when we kind of have to. Um, and a lot of trouble comes from that orientation. Uh, death is too big, too pervasive, too real, too important to get such short shrift and in a way we human beings end up alienating ourselves from ourselves because death is part of our nature it's what we do what every living thing does so there's so much to say about the sort of overall big picture and how we in the u.s in the west in general have come at it um and in part of this legislation there is a critique in there um, and the legislation allows for people to choose death under very specific circumstances as a means of last resort. And anyway, we can get into that. There are a lot of issues with the legislation itself. Um, but back to sort of as a way into the subject, ultimately, if this helps people turn their attention towards death and, and, and rope it into their reality, their frame of view, I'm supportive of it. Because underlying the law sort of is a suggestion that there are some things worse than death. And I think that's a decent place to start for many of us, but it's just a start of a conversation. Mm. There are some things worse than death. That really catches my attention. What do you mean by that? Well, pain and suffering, mm. in a few words, um, or, or rather a meaningless life, a lonely life, a life racked with pain where your body is screaming at you in an obnoxious way, where... No matter what you do, you just kind of can't embody this life. It's just too much or too hard or too wrong or unfair, etc. I mean, there's so many angles of suffering that humans can go through. Um, and I'm not saying those things are worse than death, but it certainly can feel that way. And, and it's a very, you know, again, another issue here. This is a very individual. I mean, while everyone dies, sure, so there are these generalities, but it is an exquisitely tender, personal subject when it comes to our own death. So in my own life, I've had moments where I've wondered if this is worth it, if I can keep going. Um, and I have it rel relatively good. So 
Um, that's what I'd mean by that phrase. Yeah, no, thank you. It, it, it's also interesting to me that uh, the American Medical Association or other groups within hospice or palliative care have questioned this. Some have outright opposed some of this legislation. Why is that? A couple of major reasons. Um, one is there are those who will invoke sort of a, a moral or religious plane uh, based on their belief systems that that it is not for humans to decide when they die, that that is up to the creator, and that we're stepping on toes by usurping that responsibility or that um, freedom. So there's uh, a religious underpinning to a lot of the objections for some, for many. Um, that's one big one. Another big one in the medical establishment are those who read our oaths, the Hippocratic Oath is most well-known. There's the Oath of Lasagna, an Italian physician. There are other oaths that clinicians take. Um, but some people's reading of those, uh, of those oaths have us sort of have life and death pinned against one another, that we physicians are duty-bound to support life and to forestall death at pretty much any cost. That's one read of our life, of, of, our, of our role in medicine. And I, I disagree with that. Um, I think so much the trouble here is that we, when we separate death from life, and when, when we put them in an oppositional frame of reference, we're, we're doing a, ourselves a disservice and the subject a disservice. So I have my, uh, my misgivings about that attitude, um, but that's one major th- thread. Um, another is, and this has been much the position of my field, my field being hospice and palliative medicine, who has generally opposed the, this legislation. Not that we're, as a field, opposed to dying comfortably or on someone's own terms, per se, but that there's some concern that um, this law will open up the quote-unquote slippery slope, that if we make it too easy to get off the planet, then we're going to take our boot off the neck of the system to actually get better. And I, I have some feelings about this. I, I agree in some ways. Why? Why would we jump to making it easier to die, uh, to, to end your own life, rather than doing everything we can as a society to support someone finding meaning, finding peace, being loved um, in this life, so that you don't have to wish for death? We are so far from doing everything we know how to do to make life more uh, powerful and a better case for living another day. Um, so there's an expediency like, oh, well, we're complex systems too complex. So let's just, yeah, you're in trouble. You're, you're, you're going to die soon anyway. Let's just get you off the planet. And if we get too casual about that line, there's some sense that, you know, maybe we'll all just start choosing to die. And if we have a rough spell, we're just not going to hang in there. We're not going to fight it. We're not going to try. And we'll just say, hey, throw in the towels as it were. So there's some concern around this sort of slippery slope phenomenon and also the that it somehow steals or usurps the, the tension that's vital for getting our systems to actually improve rather than just to opt out. So, mm. so those are some of the major misgivings. Yeah, that's it's fascinating. And I mean, the last thing that you said there really, really stuck with me, this idea that we're, we're, we can be hastening death versus thinking about ways to improve life or to, uh, to provide meaning to life. Um, Gosh, how do you feel about that as a palliative or hospice care doctor where, I mean, so much of what you do is uh, in some ways make people as comfortable as possible at the end of their life, but not necessarily pull the plug, I guess. Well, in, so as to your question, as a, as, a, as a palliative care and hospice physician, I see you know, my, my main priority, my main source of energy and the devotion is to the patient and their family, the individual patient and their family on their own terms. So I, um, it's not for me to judge someone wishing to hasten their death. I understand that there's a, there are times when we may just feel done with this life. I also understand the impulse to have some sense of control. And this is in some way a way to exercise control in a way to, um, be more than our illness in some way. I see how that lights up for some people. And, you know, what I think is important in my, in my job, and when someone comes to me requesting to hasten their death, and this is not just me talking, this is how we're taught in the field. You know, we take that as a conversation starter. 
you can imagine if you go too quickly, oh, Mr. Smith, you, you want to die? Okay, sure, here's some meds, you know. But very often, it's a cry for help. It's coming from a place that the pain, the pain is inadequately treated. It's coming from communication breakdown. It's coming, it being the request to hasten their death. It's coming from the sense that they're perceived to be a burden in their family or in society. And that they're doing everybody a favor, essentially, by getting off the planet. You know, and so there's a lot to open up there. If those are what's driving it, those are things we should talk out. And very often when people request this, lots of you know, effort to be supportive and talk things out and to bear witness oftentimes obviates the request to hasten death. So you have to, there's a lot to navigate to get to this eventuality. And one more thing to say in my role as what I've experienced in this role as a physician is, you know, the legislation, the way it's made out in the, the way we've gotten to some general acceptance around this idea of hastening one's death is if you're dying soon anyway, and if you're just absolutely miserable and intractably so in ways that we've tried to treat, but we, we fail. So it's a last resort thing. But if I'm honest, Jonathan, the several cases I've been involved with, um, folks who, they they were, you could say they were suffering on some level, but it, it wasn't. It was always with a wink. It was more like, hey, this is my life. I find this way out meaningful. I find the other way out horrible. And it's my call. It's my life. It's me exercising myself one last time, one last act of will. Sometimes it's with a little wink, not so much misery. Um, so oftentimes I see a sort of theater go on for these poor patients who have to somehow convince me that they're so miserable that they deserve to die. Rather, when they're really doing is actually scripting their own end and their terms. That's a very different energy, but try, try putting that into legislation. But that's often what's happening. This question of control, I think, is really important. It's one that came up a lot in the story we just heard. And one thing that, that our guest said was that um, from her reporting that about a third of the people who pick up the drugs that could hasten their death don't actually use them. But it's more about this idea that they themselves can have the agency in this situation versus the medical system at large, which I think is something you're, you're getting at. Right on. I think that's a really important, that is a, a, a very important detail. And you can imagine that, I bet, right? You know, if life, when life gets hard to know you've got a parachute in the medicine chest is itself therapeutic. Um, and oftentimes that, that, that alone does the trick. Do you ever worry that this bill or, you know, these versions of bills could ever be misused, that people could take advantage of them, that other family members could try and force someone else along this process? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, such a good point, Jonathan. Sadly, my answer is yes. I mean, human relationships can go all over the place, even in especially close ones, close-knit ones, Mm. family lives, in ways that are just spectacularly tragic in a way, looking from the outside anyway. And while I'd love to think, oh, gosh, no, no one's going to coerce their family member into exiting the stage, gosh, no. But, yeah. You know, yeah, and oftentimes it's not so explicit. Sometimes it is and just downright criminal in a way. Um, um, but oftentimes it's less obvious than that. There's a truth to being a burden when we're sick in this country. We don't have caregiver support mechanisms set up. Uh, hospitals, nursing homes are not places where most of us want to spend time, but that may be the only place we can get help, etc. We have really underdeveloped the ecosystem that goes with being chronically ill and terminally ill. And so it's true enough. You know, it's real enough that being sick over time, especially when it goes from weeks to years, you are a burden. And that's an indictment on society, how we've structured ourselves. Um, So it's not always sort of criminally immoral or negligent that that a family would sort of nudge someone to the end like this, though that does happen, sadly, and is to be taken seriously. The bigger issue is that we sort of, um, on a subtler plane, we kind of accidentally nudge each other to these lines um, one way and another, despite good intentions. But again, that, that has to do with how we as a society have structured this phase of life and made it so darn uh, off-putting. Yeah, and also, I mean, one thing that came up in this story was just how how expensive 
I mean, being being sick can be especially in these in these older or later phases of life if you're terminally ill. One thing we heard in the story was how he didn't want to put his family in debt or he wanted to pass money down to the next generation and that this was one chance he had to kind of say, I, the system is not going to help me. It's very expensive. This is the decision that I'm making. Right on. And money is a real thing. And I've watched so many families bankrupt themselves just to keep their loved one going another day, even sometimes when that loved one doesn't want to keep going. I mean, the, the, it becomes almost grotesque. Uh, and the financial burdens are very real. Um, we could say that, oh, this is life is bigger than just money, right? But mm, <laughs> in some ways, um, so no, this, that is a very real concern and one of the ways we, act, we haphazardly nudge each other towards, towards death. Mm. For those that are listening and have been reflecting on this conversation and, and may be thinking more about some of these questions of right to die or physician-assisted death, is there anything you would leave them with? Any thoughts or places to, to kind of send them? What, what do you think? You know, hey, I, on some general level, I hear you. There should be no shame in wondering about life and death and wondering if death may be coming for you, and maybe there's even something welcoming and relieving about that notion, I hope you will, with all the difficulty you have to navigate, I hope you can take shame off that pile. But this is a moment to be something of an activist, and you may have to educate people or keep this to yourself to some degree. Um, but on that last note, do consider reaching out to me at, at, at metalhealth.com. That's where I work, and I have these kinds of conversations. Or a local palliative care clinician, if you can find one. Or your general practice doctor. Share this, you know, talk about this. Don't suffer in silence. And if you get a, if you get a weird response from people, say thanks. I'll move on and find someone else. There is nothing wrong with you for dying and nothing wrong with you for even welcoming death. So I, I hope you can take that confidence and, and work from that place of strength. Dr. B.J. Miller, thank you as always for the time. We really appreciate it. Uh, Jonathan, thank you, but thanks for opening the subject up so, so, so thoughtfully and kindly. It's great to talk to you. That was Dr. B.J. Miller. He's a palliative care doctor who teaches at the University of California, San Francisco. He also co-authored the book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, and is founder of mentalhealth.com, which helps... Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.